Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 16th, 2020. The share ID number for Friday, February 14th, for the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,121. That's 14121. And there were tech issues regarding the 10 a.m. This morning, A Vision for You presents Chapter 11, Creating the Fellowship You Crave. Chapter 11, A Vision for You, is a summary of the big book, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It provides an overview of Bill Wilson's initial meeting with Dr. Bob and Dr. Bob's own release from the merciless obsession. Chapter 11 summarizes the growth of the fellowship at the time of 1939 and AA's earliest days in Akron. A Vision for You is an amazing piece of writing that provides hope and guidance for alcoholics. And of course, we apply it to our illness of compulsive overeating. Like the rest of the big book, it is full of experience, strength, and hope, emphasizing the need of a spiritual awakening to transform one's life. It teaches us that in order to ensure our recovery, we find it absolutely necessary to find others who are suffering as we once were. This allows us to let them know that we understand their misery, yet we have found a solution. We can now share our experience, strength, and hope, and be a demonstration of God's power living and flowing through us. Joining us today to bring to life Chapter 11 with her presentation, Creating the Fellowship You Crave, is Kim G., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Kim is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous who is dedicated to teaching and living the program of recovery as outlined in the big book, and it's with great and deep appreciation that I welcome Kim G. to the line. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in this morning. My name is Kim G., and I have been recovered since January 2011. Um, so those of you who don't know me, um, my top size was a size 24, where I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without having to stop to catch my breath. I've also been a size two where I lost my menstrual cycle and I couldn't walk up a step flight of stairs without having to catch my breath because I was so malnourished. And I've also been the size I am now, which is a 10, being bulimic, throwing up, and also exercise bulimic where my knees were so beat up that I had a hard time walking up a, pair, a, a flight of steps without having to stop and rest because my knees hurt so bad. I've been in OA since 1994 and I've seen the ebbs and flows of fellowship over the last 25 years. And I was drawn to this because I think that all of us crave this fellowship. But I'm actually going to start talking about this on page 17 in the chapter, There's a Solution, because I think it's a good example of looking at what do we crave. You know, so if we go to page 17, it says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill nearly all have recovered, and they've solved the drink problem. This is now in past tense. That gives me such hope. We are average Americans, all sections of this country, and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. 
but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck, where camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go on our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element, one element of the powerful cement which binds us. But that in itself would never, never have held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have found a way out, which we can absolutely agree, and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to, to those who suffer. I mean, normally would not mix. What a beautiful description of, of this specific healthy Overeaters Anonymous meeting, a vision for you. We cross the globe. We cross all denominations, all creeds, all religions, and all colors. And I love this because it reminds me that being, being um, joined by the disease is only one element. And my experience in a way is a lot of meetings are only joined on the disease. And what is so attractive about this specific meeting is that we are joined on the solution. You know, I remember reading um, about this cruise ship that uh, in the Mediterranean that, was, um, that sank and hundreds of people died. And they had an interview with some of their survivors. And what the survivors said is that people clustered together. And those that clustered together, frightened on the problem that the, that the ship was sinking, they died because they were frozen in fear and didn't move. But those that clustered together and said, we have to find a way out, one of the things they did is the great um, stairway that goes down in the middle of the cruise ship the railing, they realized they could use as a ladder. And they used that ladder to climb up because the, because the ship was on its side and they were able to escape. Too often I feel a lot of us are frozen in the fear of compulsive overeating and we huddle with those people that are suffering and we wind up dying as opposed to seeking out those people who, are, who have that solution so that we can escape together. You know, one of the things too that, that, I, that brought me to use use this title was I often hear on the lines I want to start a vision for you meeting I want to have a vision for you sponsor I want to do the steps like a vision for you does it and I just want to interpret that how I see it I want to start a vision for you meeting how do I start a healthy meeting of Overeaters Anonymous I want a vision for you sponsor how do I find a recovered sponsor to help me get through these steps I want to do the vision for you way of doing the steps all that means is I want to do the steps the way that people in AA did it when they first started. So what I want to do is go through this chapter to say how did this fellowship grow in AA? How did this fellowship that grew out of Bill and Bob and Bill D grow into a fellowship which is now over 200 12-step fellowships? So I thought maybe I wanted to read two history readings. Because this is talking about what was AA like when it was at its pinnacle. You know, when, when in the forward to the seven, second edition, it talks about a 75% recovery rate. That's like in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s. So I wanted to read what was AA doing at the time. So the first one I'm going to read is about a gentleman named Clarence Snyder. He's the one that started AA in Cleveland, Ohio. 
He went to Akron. Dr. Bob brought him through the steps, and he came back to, to Cleveland. And his group was one of the first ones to actually use the big book as a way of sponsorship because this started um, in 1939. So it says in the beginning, that is, in 1939, there were two Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous, the book, and Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship of the original 100 members. There was no difference in the approach to sobriety between them. Shortly after publication of the volume, Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939, a.k.a. the Big Book, a third fellowship develops in Cleveland, Ohio in 1940. This new fellowship is the first to use the Big Book as a part of their regular practice. AA pioneer Clarence Snyder, who was taken through the steps by Dr. Bob, modeled a style of one-on-one sponsorship in which a member of the fellowship experienced in the 12-step program would take a newcomer under his wing, help him adjust to sobriety, and coach him through the 12 steps. The sponsor and the newcomer met and worked their way through the big book together, page by page. Cleveland sponsors emphasized the Oxford group's four absolutes, honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love, and the importance of working with other alcoholics. Due to sudden swell in membership, newcomers were often put to work taking other newcomers, both one-on-one and beginner's classes, through the book before they even finished the steps themselves due to the same swell in membership. Cleveland's big book-style sponsorship quickly became the most common form of AA. Bill Wilson was constantly amazed at the growth and apparent success that Cleveland was having in sobering up alcoholics. He visited there every time he went to Ohio. Bill later wrote in AA's Coming of Age, yes, Cleveland's results were the best. The results were in fact so good that AA's membership elsewhere was so small that many a Clevelandier really thought AA's membership had started there in the first place. The Cleveland pioneers had proved three essential things. The value of personal sponsorship, the worth of AA's big book in indoctrinating newcomers, and finally, the tremendous fact that AA, when the word really got around, could soundly grow in great size. Clarence believed the difference between AA and Midwest OA was the approach to sobriety. In Ohio, the approach was trust God, clean house, help others. Clarence felt the approach in New York was don't drink, go to meetings. Emphasis on spirituality is what made Ohio AA so successful, according to Clarence. He noticed that New York AA had but a few members who were maintaining any sort of abstinence from alcohol and that most Ohio members had achieved what was to become permanent sobriety and had numerous strong AA meetings and evidence. Moreover, Clarence thought that if the primary purpose of AA were only to stop drinking, and in order to maintain that abstinence, only go to meetings, AA was doomed to failure. Clarence remembered Dr. Bob once saying, there is an easy way and a hard way to recover from alcoholism. The hard way is just going to meetings. So to me, that really emphasizes what are meetings supposed to do? We're supposed to be following this message, this 12-step program. I have to tell you my experience often was if you didn't hear the 12 steps read, my meetings I attended could be perceived as junior therapy. I think about it this way. If I was going to, to a meeting in order to learn about parenting and the first person shared 
about what a hard day they had at work. And the second person shared about the tensions in her, their marriage. And the third person talked about the in-laws coming over for the next weekend and they, were, they didn't know how to handle it. I might raise my hand and say, why are we talking about these things? I came here because of parenting. And they might say, well, yeah, but my marriage affects my parenting. My in-laws affect my parenting. My work affects my parenting, which is probably true. But if I'm coming to a parenting meeting, I want to hear about parenting. If I'm attending a 12-step meeting, I want to hear how do I work on these 12 steps. So the second reading I want to do before we start the chapter is, this is what the 1940 AA preamble is. And I want you to compare this to maybe what you hear in your own meetings on the format. Because this shows you how seriously, how seriously these AAs in the beginning took these meetings and they took the idea that the AA fellowship and the AA, the book, the big book, correlated and should be the same. So here's the 1940 AA preamble. We are gathered here because we are faced with the fact that we are powerless over alcohol and unable to do anything about it without the help of a power greater than ourselves. We feel that each person's religious views, if any, are his own affair. The simple purpose of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is to show what may be done to enlist the aid of a power greater than ourselves, regardless of what our individual conception of that power may be. In order to form a habit of depending upon and referring to, referring we all we do to that power, we must first apply ourselves with some diligence. By often repeating these acts, they become habitual and help rendered, rendered become natural to us. We have all come to know that as alcoholics, we are suffering from a serious illness from which medicine has no cure. Our condition may be the result of an allergy, which makes us different from other people. It has never been by any treatments with which we are familiar permanently cured. The only relief we have to offer is absolute abstinence the second meaning of AA. There are no dues or fees. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Each member squares his debt by helping others to recover. An Alcoholics Anonymous is a member who, through application and adherence to the AA program, has forsworn the use of any and all alcoholic beverages in any form. The moment he takes so much as one drop of beer wine, spirits, or any other alcoholic beverage, he automatically loses all status as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is not interested in sobering up drunks who are not sincere in their desire to remain sober for all time. Not being reformers, we offer our experience only to those who want it. We have a way out in which we can absolutely agree and on which we can join in harmonious action. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our program. Those who do not recover are people who will not or simply cannot give themselves to this simple program. Now, you may like this program or you may not, but the fact remains it works. It is our only chance to recover. There is a vast, vast amount of fun in the AA fellowship. Some people might be shocked at our seeming worldliness and levity. But just underneath there was a deadly earnestness and a full realization that we must put first things first. And with each of us, the first thing is our alcoholic problem. To drink is to die. Faith must work 24 hours a day in and through us or we perish. 
In order to set our tone for this meeting, I ask we bow our heads for a few moments of silent prayer and meditation. I wish to remind you that whatever is said in this meeting expresses our own individual opinion as of today and as of up to this moment. We do not speak for AA as a whole, and you are free to agree or disagree as you see fit. In fact, it is suggested that you pay no attention to anything which might not be reconciled with what is in the AA Big Book. If you don't have a big book, it's time you bought one. Read it, study it, live with it, loan it, scatter it, and then learn from it what it means to be an AA. So I love that preamble because it just told me what is that purpose of that meeting. So let's jump into the chapter, A Vision for You, and let's see how this fellowship did develop. So on page 151 is the introduction. It's trying to let us know why we're different. It's saying there, for most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, or worry. It's joyous intimacy with friends and feeling of life is good. But that's not true for us. You know, it's a heartbreaking obsession. We have one more temp and one more failure, and we become subjects of king alcohol. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. Now, I don't think this is what Bill meant. I mean, I'm sure it isn't. But this is what I think of. Some of us sought out sordid space places, hopes to find understanding, companionship, and approval. To meet us, are, we have a lot of sick meetings in OA. There's a lot of sick meetings in AA. People who are in relapse often hide in those meetings. You know, I say to myself, I always um, seeked out the fellowship I crave. Sometimes I crave just being okay being in relapse. So I would go to meetings that wouldn't challenge me, that would tell me that they love me till I love myself, to not wait, you know, just stay around till the miracle happens. And I stayed in that. There were other times I craved a food plan, and I would only hang out with people that ate exactly like me. There were times that I craved just doing the tools, and I would seek out meetings that just did the tools. So the question that I want you to ask as we go through this chapter is, what are you craving? Because today what I crave is a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. I no longer crave relief from the allergy. I crave freedom from the mental twist, which means that I do not partake in the allergy. So it, it warns us here at the bottom of that page now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment, so we're on our diet. I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a sally. We know that our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark, keeping up his spirits. He fools himself inwardly. He would give anything, anything to have a half a dozen drinks and get away with them. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as we do. It will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. So to me, he cannot picture life without alcohol. He cannot happy about his sobriety. That's letting me know my real problem. My real problem isn't the food. My real problem is being sober sucks. Abstinence sucks. When I hear now in meetings, abstinence makes me feel better. Nothing tastes as abstinence, good as abstinence feels. If that's your truth, you're probably not a compulsive overeater because abstinence does make me feel better. It makes me feel anger better. It makes me feel depression better. It makes me feel anxiety better. I'm crawling out of my skin because I'm so restless, irritable, discontent, and I need relief. So I go to the food. 
And if I, I don't know if you've been at meetings like this, but I've been at meetings where someone to the right of me is sharing how they've been abstinent for 10 years and four months and five days and 15 minutes. And you can feel the anxiety because all they're doing is dieting. Their program is don't drink and go to meetings. Don't drink and go to meetings. They're so angry. And then I, on the other side of me might be someone that has been abstinent for six months and they've been through the steps. And they're talking about this amazing amends that they did and how they have two people that they're working with and they took their first fifth step and they're light and they're airy. Why? Because they have done the 12 steps. But when we get to this point where we can't move either way, that to me is hitting our bottom. I think we think a bottom is how much weight we have to lose or the consequences of our action. To me, the bottom is that jumping off place is when I realize I can't live with the food and live without it. I'm going to tell you that point for me. And that was, and I did not know this till after I recovered. I look back on it and I realize now. Nine years ago, I broke my ankle. I had flipped my foot. It actually was facing 180 degrees the wrong way, broke bones, teared every muscle and tendon, was bed bound for you know, like eight weeks or so. And the only way I was comfortable was to put my leg on top of five pillows. And I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking to myself, I have to go to the bathroom. I'm just peeing in bed. I can't get up. It's just too much. I can't. I'm just going to pee in the bed. But five minutes later, I thought to myself, I really want some pasta. And what I did is I got up out of bed, and I had to use a walker because I couldn't even walk on crutches. And I got in my walker, and I walked past my bathroom to get into the kitchen so that I could boil enough pasta for a family of 10. And I let my my foot dangle, which was the most painful. And in the interim, I did go to the bathroom. I took that huge vat of spaghetti, a whole either jar of spaghetti sauce, put it in Tupperware so I could take it on my walker and went back to, the, to my couch and was sweating and in incredible pain. And I remember thinking, my God, I'll do anything for food that I will not do for anything else. And it was soon after that that I got abstinent and I became recovered. So continuing with the text on 152, it says, there is a substitute. And more than that, it's a fellowship in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. So I want to point this out, that they're saying in the fellowship we can get release from care, boredom, and worry. What did we read on page 151 that most normal folks can get released from care, boredom, and worry through alcohol? So I have to understand, other people can get joyousness and happiness out of eating because they don't have the allergy of the body and they don't have the mental twist. But if you have that, like I have that, like this book describes, you cannot get it from the food. Maybe we did when we were younger. Maybe there was a point that we had. I don't think I started eating and it always sucked. I ate because it worked until it didn't work. And now I have to find another area to get relief. So then it talks about this fellowship. It talks about you're making lifelong friends, that you're going to commence shoulder to shoulder in your common journey. What is that common journey? Is that common journey that serenity, which is what I saw a lot of in the 90s? Is that common journey being totally linked on a food plan, being your God? Or is that common journey the 12 steps of recovery? It says the practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Should we wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, we are sure that they will come. So letting people know to come and join it. 
Sandy B is one of my favorite AA speakers, and he always talks about an AA meeting should be a big show-and-tell operation. And I often tell people that if you're in step one and you're in a meeting in 10 and 11, think of it as a show-and-tell. Think of it as what is possible if you put the food down and work through steps one through nine, you can live in 10 and 12. And what experience are they talking about? They're not talking about my experience in a marriage or raising children or my, my, my therapist has done for me or even what my nutritionist has done for me. My experience is in the steps. So it says, our hope is that when this chip of a book is launched on the world's tide of alcoholism, defeated drinkers, right? We've got to be defeated. We'll seize upon it and follow its suggestions. What's the suggestions? The steps. Many, we are sure, will rise to their feet and march on. And they will approach other sick ones. Once again, they're telling us, how do we keep this? We've got to work with others, work with others. And the fellowship of AA may spring up in each city and hamlet, havens for those who must find a way out. And that is the steps. So then they're going to go over, how did that work for them? At the bottom of page 153, the last paragraph, years ago in 1935. So it talks about about um, Bill, who recovered in, in December of, of, 1994, of 1934, and he's trying to help people. It says on 154, bitterly discouraged. He found himself in a strange, oh, that's not right. Um, so he, those first six months, he's trying to help people, and no one's saying sober. And I heard different stories. He's heard it from Dr. Silkworth or, or his wife, that he said in his frustration, nobody's staying sober. And either Lois or Dr. Silkworth said, yes, they are. You're staying sober. And I've heard people say this, that my carrying this message has a 100% recovery rate because I've stayed sober doing it. But when he went to Dr. Silkworth and he was discouraged about not being able to help people, and Dr. Silkworth said, listen, I've been hearing what you're doing. And you're running around telling people about this white light experience. And they don't care about that. you got to hit them with the medical business and you got to hit them with them hard. Because until they know what they're suffering from, they don't care what your white light experience is like. So get with that information. On page 154, it says, bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place. This is Bill. Discredited and almost broke, still physically weak and sober, but a few months. He saw that his predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone with whom. So he understood he had to help another person if he was going to be okay. One dismal afternoon, he placed in a hotel lobby wondering how his bill was going to be paid. He saw an attractive bar. He thought there he can find companionship and release. So we talk about, in the doctor's opinion, <coughs> men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I still need an effect as a recovered woman. Bill is sitting there. He's recovered. He needs companionship release. He's looking for an effect. And what he realizes is if he doesn't get an effect from helping somebody, he's going to seek out an effect in that bar. And his, he hears in his own head, it says here, after all, had he not been sober for six months now, perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks, no more. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. Again, it was that old insidious insanity of the first drink. So he understands what thin ice he's on. And he starts to make phone calls. And he, at the top of 55, he, his call to a clergyman led him presently to a certain resident of the town who, though formerly able and respected, was then nearly at the nadir of, of alcoholic despair. He had a desperate desire to stop but saw no way out. 
for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. So now they're talking about him going to Dr. Bob. Now, what I found fascinating was when Bill went to him, he talked to him about disease, 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 disease. And when Bill said, Bill, I mean, Bob agreed to see him for 15 minutes, and he wound up staying there for five hours. And once he ground into Bob the medical condition, the allergy of the body, the mental twist, and he said, well, how did you escape? And he told him about the Oxford group, and Dr. Bob was discouraged because Bob had been doing the Oxford group for years. But it wasn't until he understood what he suffered from that he was willing to submit to the Oxford group. So that's why it's so essential. I think sometimes when we talk to newcomers, we talk about inventory, we talk about their character defects, we talk about amends. Why would they care unless they know that they're dying? So it says here, when our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he could muster could stop his drinking for long. A spiritual experience he conceded was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed way too high upon the basis suggested. He wouldn't do step nine. And it says what happened when he refused to do step nine. So sometime later, and just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor, he went on a roaring bender. And then on 156, it says, one morning he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared of his trouble he had. So Bill recovered in December of 1934. Bill and Bob met right before Mother's Day in 1935. AA's birthday is June 10th of 1935. Why is that? Because that's Bob's first permanent day of sobriety. So the birth of AA was not when our founder got sober, but when that founder successfully carried the message to another alcoholic. I think that's so profound that they picked that date of when one alcoholic successfully helped another alcoholic. And then it continues, but life was not easy for these two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. They both saw that they must keep spiritually fit. One day they called the head nurse of a local hospital and they explained their need and inquired if she had a first-class alcoholic. So I know myself, naively, I thought, well, if I do these steps, right, I'm going to be, everything's going to work my way. People are going to be so excited. I'm going to get all the things I've ever wanted in my life. You know what? Life continues to happen. And I have to be actively involved in 10, 11, and 12. But I love how they say when they looked for another, it was their need. They understood that working with others was what they needed. And they were told by this hospital that they approached, they have a corker, all right. He is a prospect, but his, his description was not too promising. And they said, put him in a private room, we'll be down. And it says two days later. So what does that tell me again? That he had to be sober to hear the message. We have to be abstinent to work these steps. And they approached Bob D, or Bill D, hopeless. Last three times I got drunk on the way home from here. I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand. For an hour, the two friends told him about their drinking experiences. Over and over, he would say, that's me. That's me. I drink a lot. I drink like that. In the Working With Others chapters, it talks about giving them a sketch of our drinking. And just like I talked about the parenting meeting, I feel too often in meetings, what we talk about is our lives. You know, I, I often give a description. I am a 50, well, 53, as of a couple days ago, a 53-year-old woman. I've never been married. I don't have children. I have a master's in accountancy with a, with a minor in fraud and forensic accounting. 
I went through 12 years of Catholic school. How many of you can relate to me? But if I tell you about my eating, if I tell you about the fact that I've, I've picked up hundreds of times saying I'm just going to have one, if I talk about the torture of not eating, if I talk about the fact that all my memories of my family have to do with the food and not the people, if I tell you about the horror and, and humiliation of my pants splitting open when I'm working at a, at a, um, at a 7-Eleven because I kept gaining weight, I didn't know what to do, I'm sure now a lot of people can relate in. So that we're here to relate our drinking experience, not our life experience. It says he even knows, even with all that information, there was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. And his response was, I know more than ever I cannot stop. But they come back to visit him. On the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of God and his creator, and he said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. And he began to have a spiritual experience. So once again, we have what does step 12 said, having had a spiritual experience as the result of the steps. So what I say is we kind of have aha moments during the way. So we might feel relief in step three, relief in step five, but we're beginning to have a spiritual experience. I need to go through the process. So it says again on 158, that was June 1935. He never drank again. He has helped many men recover. So you see, there were three alcoholics in this town who found they felt they had to give to others what they had been found or sunk. After several failures to find others, a fourth turned up. <laughs> One of my um, mentors in Philadelphia, AA, um, this guy Chris B., there was a, a, someone um, in a meeting that asked that he was so discouraged because he's working with all these guys and nobody's getting through the process. He can't get, even get anybody up to step four, and he's so discouraged. And he said, listen, he goes, I'm a big baseball fan. And the fact is, if you have a batting average of 330, which means you're hitting the ball one out of three times, you can get in the, in, the, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he said, if I get one or two out of ten guys through these steps, I'm in the AA Hall of Fame. And that's the reality, not in just an AA, but in OA. But what happens is every time I carry this message, I get stronger in my own recovery. You know, I am one of those big book nerds that if you mention something, I can probably tell you what page it is on. But it's not because I studied the book. It's because I've taken so many people through the book. I loved going through the book as a student, but I learned the book being a teacher. And then it says on page 159, as they approach yet another person, the way you fellows put the spiritual stuff, it makes sense. I'm ready for business. And that's who they focused on. They didn't focus on the people that didn't didn't mean business, that just wanted some temporary relief, that really wanted nothing to do with it, but they wanted, you know, we feel compassion for people. But it's like, no, those who meant business. What does a business mean? Are you willing to put the food down, and are you willing to do the work? It continues, they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober, and the motive became secondary. It has transcended the happiness they found in giving themselves to others. A year and six months later, they had three succeeded into seven. So after 18 months, it's only seven of them. So just to think of all that work we do, all that work they're doing, and they're, but they're growing, constantly, constantly thinking of how they might present their new discovery to some newcomer. Now, I want to, we talked earlier about, I think sometimes people idolize this specific meaning and vision for you. But I just want to give this description because what I feel is the electricity in this meeting is recovery. It's not the format. 
It's not even the personalities. Because I'm sure, I don't know about you all, but in my whole office of people, there's people I don't like. There's people in my family I don't like. We're not going to like everybody on a vision for you or, or identify you with every personality. But what is electric is the recovery in there. And the more diverse we are, the more people we can help. So on page 160, I, I think this is a beautiful description of a healthy meeting. And sometimes I have to tell you, and I'm going to tell you about my process and my home group, but this is what I feel my meeting, my home group describes, which what time is it? My home group just started six minutes ago. Um, it says, many a man yet days from his hospital experience has stepped over the threshold of that home into freedom. Many an alcoholic who entered there came away with an answer. He succumbed to that gay crowd inside who laughed at their own misfortunes and understood his. Impressed by those who visited him at the hospital, he capitulated entirely when later in an upper room of this house, he heard the story of some man whose experience closely tallied with his own. The expression on the faces of these women, that indefinably something in their eyes, of the men, the stimulating and electric atmosphere of this place conspired to let him know that here was haven at last. That's, that's the electricity I get in my home group. That's what I hear people talking about my home group. Now, I have to tell you, I hear something else about my home group. I've heard people talk about who are in relapse. They tell you what meetings to go to that won't make you do anything. And I've heard people warn people in relapse not to come to my meeting because they're going to make you do something. I'm totally fine with that because I'm more concerned about helping people recover than helping people stay comfortable in relapse. And it says here, the very practical approach to their problems, the absence of intolerance of any kind, the informality and general democracy, the, un the uncanny understanding which these people had were irresistible. Are our meetings doing that today? Are we doing this very practical approach to our problems, which is the 12 steps, or are we complicating it? So what happens when we start focusing on, on, on focusing totally on the solution? On page 161, it says, now this house will hardly accommodate its weekly visitors, for they number 60 or 80 as a rule. Alcoholics are still attracted from far and near, from surrounding towns, families driving long distances to be present. A community 30 miles away has 15 fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Being a large place, we think that someday its fellowship will number many hundreds. That was his hope in 1935. Hundreds. What would Bill think of today? What would he think about that there's over 200 12-step fellowships? What would Bill think of a meeting like a vision for you that wraps the globe with a member list that's over 6,000? What would he think of that? I don't think he, it was even part of his idea. It says, in, again, the next paragraph on 161, no one, no one is, is too discredited or sunk too low to be welcomed cordially, dash, if he means business if that person is willing to do the work, in other words. Social distinctions, petty rivalries, and jealousies, they are laughed out of countenance. Being wrecked on the same vessel, being restored and united under one God, with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others, the things which matter so much to some people no longer signify much to them. You know, I'm going to talk about my own experience, but I want to intercede for a minute here. When I recovered nine years ago in my area, I'm in an area that's densely populated with meetings, but they were mostly disease meetings. I was scared to go back to those meetings after I was on disability and listening to a phone meeting. And what I said was, I needed to go to AA. 
And I have to tell you, because sometimes I think we idolize AA. In my county in New Jersey, there's 250 meetings, and they had a drop-down menu. And I put Big Book, and there were only five out of 250. And the first meeting I went to, in all honesty, is like any other meeting. It was like my home group. They read the Big Book for 20 minutes, and then everybody shares on everything but what was read. They talked about their PO officers as opposed to us talking about our kids. That was the only difference. The second meeting I went to was closed. And what happened for me was I was listening to a bunch of podcasts, and I love accents, accents from all across the country, and suddenly I heard a Philly accent. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's from Philly. And gratefully on that recording, and I, and I know this actually it's the guy Chris I'm talking about before, and he's only done like two podcasts. So out of the thousands of podcasts, I just happened to listen to his. And, um, and he mentioned his home group. And on Friday nights, I would drive an hour and a half to attend an hour and a half meeting and drive an hour and a half home because I was so hungry for a clear message. But let me tell you, I can't recover in AA because when it says here wrecked on the same vessel, what's the difference between AA and OA and GA and NA and SLIA? It's step one, what I'm powerless over, what I'm allergic to. And step 12, who I carry the message to. So I still attend AA meetings, but I am a member of Overeaters Anonymous because that's the vessel that I am wrecked in. So let's look at page 162. They talk about this doctor. Every few days, this doctor suggests our approach to one of his patients. Understanding our work, he can do this with the eye on to selecting those who are willing and able to recover on a spiritual basis. This is what our means. We're, are we focused on those who want to recover, or are we offering a diet club with group support? You know, I, I actually got an opportunity I've never had before to speak to a group of, um, of uh, people yesterday who just got out of rehab. I've never done that before. And the person who asked me to do it said, well, she doesn't know how large the group's going to be. And I said to her, if one or two people there hear a message of depth and weight, that's all I care about. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the people who are, who are saying, I don't want to pay for Jenny Craig, so I'll go to this OA meeting. I'm not looking for the people who are moderate and hard eaters that maybe can just do the tools and be okay. My eye is put on those who need this message and who are willing to do this message. On 162, again, someday we hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find a fellowship of AA Alcoholic Anonymous at its destination. Once, once again, what a wonderful gift a vision for you gives. You know, I often hear two different extremes, people who listen to this meeting that have no meetings in their area and people who listen to this meeting have a lot of meetings in their area, but none of them are focused on the solution, which was my case. So it says, thus we grow and so can you, though you may be but one man with this book in his hand. We believe and hope it contains all you need to begin. So is this book, is the steps the focus of the meeting? Are we working with others? Is my practical experience that I'm sharing in my shares, is it about the steps or is it about my life? Continues, I'm, jitter, I'm jittering alone. I couldn't do that, but you can. You forgot that you just tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. To duplicate with such backing what we have accomplished is only a matter of willingness, patience, and, and labor. This is what I think um, people are asking for. They, they want to duplicate a vision for you this phone meeting in their, in their area. And I understand that, man. This is an electric meeting. But how do we duplicate it? We duplicate it by recovering ourselves, 
helping another person, getting that person recovered. And we want to duplicate this process. Whenever someone gives me something and I'm kind of, I'm like, where is that in the book? Because I don't want to, I mean, my program for many years in OA was basically slogans and people's opinions. And when I recovered was when I started doing the actual directions in the book. It says here, and again, the doctor proved to be able to exceeding, exceedingly anxious to adopt any workable method of handling the situation. So that's what the doctors are looking for, a workable method. Once again, my opinion, but I don't think a lot, you know, I, I, we have a, a doctor that just contacted me because um, I'm a contact for my home group who wants to attend some OA meetings. And I'm embarrassed to say that I was a little bit nervous about what meeting she would attend because what ideas she would get of OA Readers Anonymous. I've said this example a few times, but I was working with someone who was recovered in NA and AA, came to OA dying. And her first meeting she went to, the woman leading the meeting was morbidly obese, said she'd been in OA for 20 years and had two weeks of abstinence, and everybody was clapping. And she said she was confused why someone with two weeks could, could lead a meeting. And after the meeting, I guess she must have said something, because after the meeting, the woman came up to her and gave her a hug and said, oh, honey, this is OA. Sometimes the best we can do is get two weeks. I mean, what kind of message is that carrying in our, in our, in our meetings? On the bottom of 163 again, some of them may sink and perhaps never get up. And if our experience is criterion, more than half of those approached will become fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. So the question is, are we approaching? And this is my humble opinion again, but I think we, work, we focus too much on the newcomer coming in the room to the detriment of the people who've been around for decades that are continuing to suffer. And that was my experience. Fit 17 years in and out of OA, suffering, and everyone was focused on that newcomer in the room. Top of 164, there will be no stopping until everyone in this town has had its opportunity to recover, if he can and will. Still, you may say, I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. You know, this to me is also the, the warning of not to get attached to personalities. You know, I, personally, my big mentors, everyone talks about um, um, uh, Joe and Charlie, but mine were Bob D and Scott L. I mean, me and my friends listen to their CDs over and over again. And I was so attached to that personality. And I have to tell you, it was very wonderful because I got to meet Bob Day in Philadelphia. And I went up to him, worshiping him. And when I talked to him, he was the biggest gossip. I was so, like, offended by some of the stuff he was saying to me. But I thought to myself, thank you, God, because it's not about Bob. Bob is a wonderful speaker. He speaks in analogies, which is how it works for me. But I started to worship Bob versus the message that he was bringing. And it got me back to the understanding that the fellowship will support us, but it's the steps that are going to change us. So I need to focus on what the solution is versus who's saying the solution. And then that part of 164, which we read at the end of all of our meetings, our book is meant to be suggestive only, right? It says the answers will come if our own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. This is why meetings need to start from a recovery. I know in my area, and I, this is when I hear people starting Vision for You meeting, they, they're starting a meeting on the hope of recovery. They don't have recovery themselves, 
I know in my area a lot of times, and I feel like I'm trashing my area, but I think it's pretty stereotypical, um, is that, well, if I have to drive a half hour, I want to start a meeting that's 15 minutes away from me. As opposed to, I'm, I'm in recovery and I want to carry this message. I just want to make it more convenient. So as we finish up the chapter, I'm just going to tell you what my experience was. So I'm in the midst of a five-year relapse. I break my ankle and I, um, you know, am bed bound. And I get a phone call from a woman that I've known for over 20 years. And she's all excited because she saw an article in Lifeline magazine by Kim G from Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is my, where I grew up. And I said, to her, and I looked at her, I said, that wasn't me. I'm like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. She's like, well, how are you doing? And I just started bawling. I started bawling about the, of how I was in this relapse and I couldn't get out of bed. And she gave me the phone number of a phone meeting. It wasn't this specific meeting, but a phone meeting. And I got on that phone meeting because I thought phone meetings were ridiculous. I have so many face-to-face meetings. Why go to a phone meeting? But what I heard was my truth. And what I realized was for 17 years, the meetings, always, often our meetings would start out, are there any other compulsive readers here besides myself? And I would raise my hand. And what I started to realize is I was raising my hand to I'm fat and I don't want to be fat anymore, or I'm not fat and I'm terrified of getting fat again. And what this meeting showed me was what it meant to be a compulsive overeater. And I was desperate now to do this. And I went through these steps in six weeks because I understood my, I, I understood that if I got alpha disability and I went back to work, I was never going to do these steps. I had this unique opportunity of being home where I could work these steps. And we were, you know, other people in my area were, were listening to this meeting and we were craving it, but we didn't know what to do about it. So first we met at this other woman's house and what we would do is we would get a recording of this phone meeting and we'd hear the, 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 the paragraph. And I, we did, I'm sure what a lot of us all do is we fast forwarded to hear the personalities that we liked. And then we would stop the recording and we would practice the sharing. We would practice that type of sharing. And then there was a gentleman that always read last. So we'd fast forward to him because we knew the next after him would be the next paragraph. And then we listened to that and a couple of our favorites and we kept practicing sharing. Then we started moving, then we started um, meeting at my house and doing this. Now, I have to tell you, I, um, this meeting was not registered with Overeaters Anonymous. So we didn't have the opportunity to use it in a real meeting. I just want to encourage you guys, if you are in a meeting that doesn't have recovery, this meeting here, Vision for You, is a registered OA meeting. You could use a special edition or even a regular meeting and use it in your home group and have that be a springboard so people can start learning to, to, to share this in this way that the first 100 did. Now, my, first, my home group has been the same home group since I've been in for over 25 years. Um, and what it was was we would read 20 minutes of the, of the uh, stories in the back. We never read the first 164 pages. And then we would all share for 40 minutes about our lives, nothing to do with the readings. So we wanted to start a meeting that was like this. So what we did is we got five or six of us were now recovered, and we found a location, and we all committed to six months to attend this meeting. We called it the clear-cut directions meeting. And we waited for six months to even register with World Service. Now, this is not big book. This is being an ex group chair. 
So if you register a meeting and it closes, often that meeting gets circulated in the ether and you're going to have people showing up to that meeting when it's closed for years. So I always suggest that people wait till you know your meeting is viable in order to register with World Service. Then what we started to do is we started to create panels. And we would, three of us would go out, whatever meetings would invite us, and we would do all the step one chapters. So we would do doctor's opinion, the next panel would be Bill's story, the next panels would be, um, you know, there's a solution, the next panel would be more about alcohol. And then what we did is we decided to do a 12-week series because it was getting more popular. We're starting to build momentum because people were getting hungry for this message. And we did it at my home group. And at the end of that 12 weeks, my home group, we had a group conscious, and we decided to change it to our current format. We took a, we took a format from Philadelphia that we did a big book breakdown meeting, and we have a page-by-page -page big book study. And then two years ago, because we started having these step one meetings where we have two recovered people come in the first Sunday of every month and talk about the first four chapters, we, we started our own podcast. Now, this is a little podcast from a little meeting in New Jersey, and we've had, I think, I don't know, like 40-something thousand downloads in two years, and we only have 24 episodes, but it just shows how hungry, hungry people are doing that. So just to, um, to kind of wrap this up, I want to say that this wonderful, wonderful meeting, A Vision for You, is not magical. The electricity you're hearing is the recovery. The, the excitement you're hearing is people doing the work. And I worry when people here in relapse are starting meetings. But I want you to know, what is the fellowship you crave? I, I tell you, what I crave today is I crave, I have my hand in front of me for those mentors that are ahead of me in this program. I have a hand behind me to help distill suffering. And I have sisters, spiritual sisters, I call, that are walking with me shoulder to shoulder. And if I do that, I'm creating the fellowship around me that, that craves this. And as long as I actively stay engaged in 10, 11, and 12, I know I am experiencing permanent recovery today. And I also feel that OA will continue to grow and expand as long as we are focused on the solution versus just focused on the problem. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Kim, for your fascinating and comprehensive presentation of Chapter 11. Thank you very much for your generous service. Today's share ID number 14,127. That's 14127. Kim's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, please, uh, to Kim by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Abby S. Abby. Jason K. Jason K. All right. Fran. M. Fran M. Okay. Let's get started Sandy with Sandy W. And Sandy oh, W. Sorry, Leah. No problem. Great. Darlene H. Okay, Darlene H. Anyone else? Okay. Good group. Let's start with Abby S. Everybody else, please mute. 
Hi, my name is Abby S. Compostable Reader in Southern California. Thank you so much for your um, amazing share. I have a question about what do you do when you have friends, like girlfriends, um, who are stuck in the problem and stuck in self-pity and just don't want to work the steps? Um, how do you move on with your life? Like, do you, do you just leave them behind or... Um, how do you make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who are good influences on you? Thanks for the question, Abby. Do you mean do you mean friends in OA or friends that you have outside of OA? Friends in twelve steps. In twelve steps. I mean, the best thing that you can do for anyone is to live in recovery. So don't talk about recovery; live it. You know, and for myself. Um, you know, they talk about in the big book about how they used to keep alcohol in their trunks to help someone get over, you know, the DTs and things like that. So I wouldn't shy away from these people. They need to see recovery in their life. doesn't mean that you need to co-sign their BS, but just be an example to them. And, and for myself, you know, the way that I feel is if, if someone's willing to get on board, awesome. If they're not, then, then I, I can be friendly. I can be fellowship. I had someone in my, in, um, in my area, tell me that she doesn't want to talk, not to call her anymore. She doesn't like me anymore. And I'm like, okay, and I'm respecting that. doesn't mean I don't say hi to her in meetings. doesn't mean I, I don't pray for her. Um, but the best thing we can do for anyone is to live recovery. And I know for myself, when I'm in relapse, people who are recovered and who are happy, it's sometimes it's very painful to be around them. So they might find it painful to be around you. But my suggestion to you is just to live happy, joyous, and free, and that is what's going to attract them, not what you say. Thanks, Abby, for the question. Mm -hmm. Jason Kay, your turn. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Thank you, Kim, for your talk. Uh, I think that's great to hear a distinction between we have a fellowship and we have a program, uh, and I don't know if Phil ever thought the two could exist without each other. You know, you could have fellowship without the program. Um, So I think it's good to discern those things. But I get confused when I hear people talk about three legacies and a circle and a triangle and a three-part program of recovery, unity, and service. Uh, I'm wondering if it would uh, be something you could elaborate on, uh, that those distinctions. Jason, I'm going to be humble enough to tell you I really don't know how to answer that. I I know know about the, the the circle and the triangle, and I've heard the wording, but I, I really don't know enough to actually kind of expand on that. I'm sorry. Okay, we'll have to ask one of our other historians in the group at this point. <laughs> Good deal. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Fran M., your turn. Star one to unmute Fran. Fran. Hi, it's Fran. Kim, thanks so much for your qualification and for your dedication to the program and sharing how it worked for you. Um, You said something about how we have to get abstinent in order to work the steps, but also working the steps is the only way to really have recovery. Um, I think if those of us who have a different experience that abstinence first, then you don't eat no matter what, and no matter what you don't eat, has worked for us and we've become abstinent for many years and along the way we work the steps. 
Um, I've heard you say that that means that we're not compulsive overeaters. Do you really think there's just one way that works in this program um, of recovery? I, I personally I mean, is it possible for people to do it a different way and have perfect recovery and live their lives and maintain a healthy weight and not eat compulsively and live life trying to work the steps because I think it's pretty impossible to work the steps every I mean we work the steps every day but um, as you so wisely said they don't give us everything we want but they give us a method for how to live I, I believe that I'm in a 12-step program that's based on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous so the book tells me that I have to get abstinent and I'm not going to stay abstinent unless I do the steps um, doctors, Dr. Silkworth talks about different types of alcoholics, but the big book is clear that the big book is for those people who cannot work this program on a non-spiritual basis. So if somebody's able to stay abstinent and happy working the tools, they don't fit the definition of an alcoholic of the type in this book. Because of the third tradition, yeah, you're absolutely welcome. People who do that, um, if they're happy, joyous, and free, that's awesome. Um, but I stick to close to the book because my concern is for the people who cannot do what you're saying, the people who cannot get abstinent and stay at a normal body size um, contently um, without dedicating themselves to this book. You know, sometimes I think to myself, like, when I hear people doing it all these different ways, it's almost like I'm in baseball camp and somebody's playing cricket. And cricket is kind of like baseball, but it's really not. So if I'm, if I'm dedicated to the 12-step program, I realize that myself, once again, I was disrespecting a 12-step program by working an eight-tool program. And I know that I lived in and out of relapse because I kept trying to do it a different way. I kept going into relapse because people were giving me their experience, which didn't match up with mine because maybe they were able to dabble in the steps. Um, I think of it this way, too. My brother's diabetic, and he's insulin-dependent diabetic. And if he went to a diabetic support group and people who don't need to take insulin, who are diabetics, said to him, hey, Scott, come on. I'll, I can just take this pill, and I'm able to regulate my diet and exercise, and I don't need to take insulin. If we're both diabetic, don't take your insulin. And my brother would die on that message, that message because my brother is a diabetic of the type that is insulin dependent. So my focus is not on the people who can do it differently and maybe don't need this program of recovery. Because remember, Fran, too, this Ox, this, our steps are based on the Oxford group. It was not based on addicts. This program will help anyone have a relationship with God. The difference in the AA or NA or GA is if we don't do it, we're going to die. So I'm focused on the people that are the alcoholics of the type described in this book because that's who I am. And if I start trying to emulate people who aren't, are not an alcoholic of the type that I am, I will die in this disease. So that's just, I, I line up with exactly what the big book says. And the big book says, first you put down the food, and then you work the steps. And if the doctor opinion says, if we do not do that, we are going to go back into this vicious cycle over and over and over and over. And thanks for the question. Thank you, Fran. Thank you. I totally agree. Abstinence first. <laughs> hi, my name is. Hi, me. My name is Carol. 
I'm a compulsive overeater. And Hi, Carol. Everything. Hi. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Nikki. Okay. For this moment. One um, moment, and- please. We're taking questions, and now I'll be inviting Sandy W. to pose a question, oh. please. Okay, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Leah. Thanks so much um, for your service. And Kim, thanks again for your um, powerful message. It's always been so helpful to me. Um, I'm curious um, to learn where or how I could uh, get a copy of that preamble that you read. And I'd love your humble opinion on if you think it'd be helpful to use that as part of a share um, at an unhealthy face-to-face meeting. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Sandy. Um, If you just Google 1940s preamble, AA, there's tons of different PDFs on there. Um, You know, this is not big, but you have to know your audience because that's a really strong message. And some meetings that are highly invested in disease are going to see that as an attack. Um, Leah, when I had talked to her years ago, I was going to call you out, Leah. I remember her saying to me that we want to build bridges and not walls. And that's something I've had to work on. Um, I was building a lot of walls the first five years because I was, and it wasn't out of malice. It was out of this, I need to get this through to people because I was dying and now I found an answer and you have to have it. And people just would like, screw you, you know, kind of thing. So you have to know if your meeting would be open to it. You, You know, I would read it, maybe use that language in shares versus saying, this is what, this is what the 1940s said but to talk about how serious they were um, if you're giving a presentation. But you have to know what your meeting, your meeting is going to be open to because you don't want them to shut down. Um, you know, um, a friend of mine, when we do speaking engagements, what we talk about is we want to disturb the comforted and comfort the disturbed. And that's a really delicate balance. I hope you, think, I hope you know what I'm saying. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. Darlene H. Star one. I just want to say that your that was an excellent uh, talk that you gave. Um, can you give me that website number? That the are, you, are you Darlene H? No, I'm Cheryl. Okay, hi Cheryl. You're, Carol. Yes, Carol. Carol, please. I'm asking for Darlene H. At this time. I'm, she oh, pose a question. Thank you. Please. Darlene H. Hi, good morning. Hi, Kim. Darlene H. from Columbus, Georgia. Um, as always, so awesome to hear you, Kim. Um, my question. You shared a lot of history at the beginning of your talk this morning. Can you tell me where I can find that information? Um, actually, the, the two things I shared outside the big book were um, the Clarence Snyder information, and you can Google him, and then the 1940s preamble, which you can Google. Everything else was actually me going through the chapter. I, I just, for time's sake, I wasn't really quoting lying. I was just um, highlighting different things in there. Um, so, um, Text me. There's a couple really good websites that have really good AA history, but I don't feel comfortable doing on the line because they're not, you know, they're not accredited by AA. But I can send you a couple links. But if you just do AA history on the Google, I'm sure there's stuff that you can find as well. Thank you, Darlene. Okay, who has a question 
for Kim this morning? Star one to unmute. Gen Z. Gen Z. Hi, this is Russ Ann B in Detroit. Russ Ann B. Jackie M. Michigan. Jackie M. Mo H. Mo H. Sam S. I didn't catch the name. Sam S. Sam S. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This will be the final uh, invitation for questions, by the way. Anyone else? Questions for Kim? Star one to unmute if you'd like to put your name on the list. Okay. I didn't catch that last name. Sharon C. Sharon C. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's start off with Jen Z. Terry B. Terry B. Okay. Jen Z, go right right ahead, please. Okay. Hi, Kim. Hi, Leah. This is Jen Z from Kentucky. Uh, thank you so much, Kim, for your presentation. Um, I started in the uh, rooms, my local rooms, about four or five years ago, and uh, had a, I gave my fifth step to someone who was uh, morbidly obese, and I didn't know any better. Um, and just here within the last month, I've been in vision since then, the last month I went back to a workshop that this person was at, and she's just this, the same size and now sponsoring. And uh, my question to you is, since today's society is so uh, against body shaming, I'm wondering if there's a tactful way, or if you've come up with a tactful way, to question somebody why their physical recovery has not met up with their supposed spiritual recovery, and to do that in a way that's, um, um, well, is received well as possible based on how tactful it is. I pass. Thanks for the, for the question, Jen. I, I just want to say one thing, too. With the uh, morbid obesity, we get through these steps quickly. You know, um, on average, I get people through in two to three months. If someone has 100 pounds to lose, they're not going to lose 100 pounds in two to three months. So I don't want to say someone that is ob- morbidly obese can't sponsor. Because if they've had a, absolutely gone through the steps and had a spiritual awakening, they're, they're, they can sponsor, but they're going to continue to lose weight. So I don't want to label someone as not recover just because they're still morbidly obese. Because um, we don't know where they started at. Now, the fact that you said that person hasn't changed in the five years, that's, that's a different thing. But I just wanted to put that out there because I know sometimes I've had sponsors that say, well, I can't sponsor until I get to my goal weight. I'm like, you'll die before you get to your goal weight if you don't sponsor. Um, so you, you, I just want to clarify that. Um, you know, I wish I, I could give you a, a good answer, but all I can tell you is I have found most useful to not talk to them about what they are doing, but talk about your own experience. You know, to talk about that, you know, the fact that you, when I was in, when I was in relapse and I, when I was heavier, that I, my weight was, was equal to my pain. That, um, that, you know, I, I, cause I personally gained 60 pounds in the room saying I was abstinent sponsoring and nobody said anything to me. I wish someone had come up to me and asked me how I was doing, you know, asked me about my pain, maybe challenged me on that. 
but I can't tell you a specific way, but I, my suggestion is to talk to this person, talk about your own experience, and then pray about God giving you an opening to say something to that person because they're dying. They're more, you know, they are in pain if, if they have not lost the weight over a five-year period. Um, they are compulsively overeating if they are, if, if they are maintaining that weight. I mean, I know some people that will, maybe they haven't had sugar in five years, but they're still morbidly obese because they're still eating other binge foods or whatever. Um, but I find that it's most helpful to talk about what it felt like for me being in disease and trying to play like everything was okay, if that makes sense. Thank you, Gen Z, for the question. Russ Ann B., your turn. Is that Jackie M.? Um, Jackie M., you're after Russ Ann. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Russ Ann B., star one to unmute. Okay, hello. Thank you so much, Kim. Been such a teacher and support over so many years to me, and I thank you. You mentioned a podcast that your home group created. Can you tell me how to access that? Sure. Um, so this is a registered OA meeting. That's why I can announce this. Um, it is, if you have an iPhone, you just, um, on your, whatever podcast you have, just put OA, Big Book, Cherry Hill, and J for New Jersey. If you have an Android, the platform is Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, and you'll search for the same one, which is OA, Big Book, Cherry Hill, and J. Um, also, to my inner, the reason I say I'm Kim from South Jersey is because my inner group is South Jersey Inner Group. Um, and if you go on South Jersey Overeaters Anonymous Inner Group website, there's actually a link to that podcast as well on the website. Can I ask you if the podcasts are titled according to the steps or a particular order that you um, recommend listening to them in? What we have is we have a monthly um, step one meeting. So the first Sunday of every month. So you'll see the date, step one, and the name of the two people that are presenting it. Um, what, we, what we have done now in the last two years is um, our Sunday meetings. So when there's a five Sunday month, um, the fourth Sunday of that month, um, we have a special meeting, which we do steps two through 12. So for example, March 22nd, wow. we, we have um, a presentation on steps two and no, step 12. Step 12 we're doing in March. Um, so there will be at least 12 episodes and then probably like three or four episodes other than that. Um, okay, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Roseanne. Jackie M., now's your turn. Thank you so much. Heading out to church, sorry. I just, I am so fascinated by this. I, and I, I have, I, I, I don't talk well after meetings and during meetings, and I don't know what to say to people after meetings, and is it better just to be quiet and give hugs and say, hey, or is it better? Because I don't really think I have anything to share since um, I haven't been able to keep my abstinence, except for I'm on four days, I think. Um, so what is, your, um, what is your suggestion? Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Um, you know, if, if we're not through the steps yet, we can be pointers. You know, if you're listening to a really good podcast, whether it's an AA podcast or an OA podcast or a Vision for You podcast, you can say to someone, wow, you know, I heard this great podcast on the doctor's opinion. You know, can I send it to you and maybe we can talk about it? 
or if there was something in the meeting that really hit you, say to the person, man, you know, when, when Sarah shared about the allergy of the body, it really hit me. What do you think about that? Or, you know, specifically if you're in the beginning, go up to um, recovered people. If you heard something in the meeting that disturbed you or you didn't understand, go up to someone after the meeting and say, you know, when, when Sarah talked about the allergy and she said alcohol in any form, I don't understand what that means. And start a conversation that way. I know for me, even with outreach phone calls, I mean, it sounds weird because I, I, I know that I do these talks and I speak well, but I suck at small talk. I get very self-conscious with any kind of small talk. So when I was doing my phone calls in the beginning, I found it most comfortable to have a question and ask the person the question and just shut up. Because big book people love to talk about the big book. So all you have to do is call someone and say, I was reading this line in Bill's story about food was my master. What does that mean to you? I have my sponsees call recovered people every day, and one of the common things they do is say, I'm, I'm studying uh, more about alcoholism. Can you tell me what your favorite paragraph is? Um, so I find that that's the easiest way if you have difficulty with small talk is to ask questions or reflect back something that means to you. I hope that's not my feedback. I'm sorry, I'm going to is is that the same as when you go to a face-to-face -face meeting to do the same thing as as on the phone then? Yep. Yeah, oh. I, I definitely, I definitely, I'll just tell you a funny thing because I'm sometimes I think that I worship AA. Now, I've been feeling too much on the teacher end and I need more students. So I, I found out two of my AA uh, mentors were having a, um, started a Thursday night big, uh, big book breakdown that's kind of close to my house because usually I have to go into Philly. And, uh, so I started attending a few weeks ago and I got there and it was just, it was just rock star. I just love these two people. And it was about 50 people in the meeting. And at the end of the meeting, everybody charged the two speakers. And I'm thinking like, man, see how in AA they're so hungry for it. They're all trying to get through. Oh, I wish LA was like this. And I went up to, cause I wanted to say hi to Amy. And I went up there and I realized they were all getting paper signed because they were all in recovery houses and had to attend meetings. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh, here I go. You know my prejudices, and there was a whole bunch of vans in the back in the parking lot waiting for them to get their stuff signed so they could go back to the recovery house. So it's difficult for everybody. Um, but I, yeah, I would do the same thing. I would just go up to someone if you know think about something that was said in the meeting. Also, service, Jackie. I don't know about your meetings, but help set up the chairs, help put the chairs back. Um, we have for our meeting no absence requirement. We have greeters because we're in a hospital, and sometimes it's a side entrance, and people have a hard time finding where our meeting is. So we have volunteers greeting people to help them find out where the meeting is. Maybe decide to be a greeter. Come early and welcome people. Get yourself connected. That fellowship you created, you want to get yourself connected to the face-to-face -face meetings. Thanks, Jackie M. Mo H., you're up. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. And uh, thank you so much, Kim. I, I, I got so much out of this. My question is simple, um, and it's probably been asked many, many times before. How do I help support someone in the rooms who continues to relapse, not month after month, but year after year? Well, the first thing, though, is you're not God. So that's one of the things I have to do is I have, I have to quit playing God. I can be an example. I can tell you, I am the daughter of an LA member. My mom came in when I was 10. I didn't come in until she, I was 27. 
what my mom did for me is she lived a life of recovery so that when the food beat me into a state of reasonableness, I knew OA was an option. That's all she could do for me. She tried to give me a beginner's meeting when I was 23. She came in my bedroom after college and I had binge foods underneath the covers and she was shaking and she was reading this paper. I didn't know what she was doing at the time, but she was reading me a beginner's meeting because she was scared for me. But there was nothing she could do except live a life of recovery. And the other thing is tell people the truth. Don't tell them it's okay. Don't tell them it's no big deal. Be willing to, to be on that firing line and say you're scared for them. Say there's a solution. Don't sugarcoat things. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the fact is that I'm so grateful to the women in the rooms who were more concerned about saving my life than hurting my feelings. I always mm-hmm. talk about, and I'm not just talking about sponsoring. I remember we had this meeting. I was a member of, of HAL for many years, and, and we don't have it anymore in New Jersey, but it was pretty strong in the 90s. And I was at a Friday night meeting, 100 people in that meeting, which now that meeting is almost closed three times in the last year. So that's why I'm, I feel very passionately about this stuff. Um, and I was telling her all the things that I binged on. And she listened to me very quietly. And at the end of it, she looked at me and said, did you ever notice all those foods have flour in it? And honestly, I wanted to slap her. And I don't know who that person is. I don't even know if I still know her. I can't picture her face. All I can feel viscerally is those words. And that is what taught me the allergy. Because she didn't shy away from telling me the truth. So when I think of working with others, I think of it as every interaction I have with the still suffering. It doesn't matter whether I can take them through the steps or not. You know, if someone comes up to me who's in the food and says it's no big deal, she just had a slip and her sponsor said it's okay, I, you know, I would be willing to say to that person, you know what, you could die with that message. It's not okay. I know for me, once again, bring it to you, that I had to take my, alcohol, my food as seriously as alcoholics take their alcohol. You know, if they're, if, they're, if they're trying to do the steps while they're eating, let them know that that doesn't work. Don't say, well, yeah, people do it different ways. It's okay if she's eating. Let them know that, because I think that we need to let them know the reason the steps aren't working is because you're eating. That's not the way the steps were set up. So I would get quiet with your higher power and ask how you can, can compassionately tell her the truth. Because when, when we are constantly telling people everything's okay because we don't want to hurt people's feelings, you know, maybe at her funeral they'll tell you how much she, that, that she liked you. And I don't want to take that chance. Thank okay. you, Mo, for the question. Sam S., your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Kim, so much for your presentation. Well, my question today is um, how long do you um, require a brand-new sponsee to be absent before you start working the steps with them? Thank you. Thanks, Sam. And I want to say this: this is where... The path is is very clear in the big book, but we do have different strengths and different personalities, so you're going to hear differences. So I'm just going to tell you what I do um, is I have make a doctor's appointment appointment with somebody, and I assume that they're eating, whether they're doing it on purpose or whether they're doing it because they don't understand what their allergy is. I consider it like Bill's story when Eddie comes to see Bill and Bill is still drinking. So we go through that doctor's opinion. I help them identify what their abstinence is. They tell me their binge food, and they tell me what they think 
they're confused about and what they think they can eat safely. And then I drill it down to ingredients. And once I do that, I say, okay, what I'm seeing is this, this, and this ingredient is, is your alcohol. Are you willing to put them down 100%? And as long as you're willing to put it down 100%, then I usually make an appointment. I, I talk to people three days a week. So usually when we start, it's two to three days later. So they have 48 to 72 hours. Now, I know people that require a week, two weeks. What I believe is there's a choreography of God that the people who can help each other will be coordinated together. But that is just, that is just my, um, my experience. Thank you, Sam, for the question. Sharon C., star one to unmute. Hello, can you hear me? I do. Okay. Yeah, my my question was just answered, the one before this question. So it was completely answered, and thank you so much, Kim. Okay, thank you, Sharon C. Our final question for the morning comes from Perry B. Perry, your turn to pose a question. Thank you, Kim, for your service. Uh, This is Perry B. in Florida. Um, so grateful when I hear your voice. You've given me so much courage and so much inspiration over the years. Uh, just for today, I'm going to be abstinent. Um, yesterday didn't turn out that way, and I did go to a face-to-face meeting. And I was wondering if giving out my card, my business card that has my phone number, to share so that somebody could call me, is that not a correct thing to do? I literally got into an argument with one of the people there. So that showed me, you know, I'm still raging with anger about this disease. Um, getting abstinent, like I said, uh, as of last night. Uh, so for me, over 35 years, yes, I've lost 50 pounds. Yes, I've sponsored. And yes, I love when I can find a big book sponsor that will help me with the doctor's opinion, and I've tried now on several attempts. I'm going to make another attempt because, like Richard Simmons says, never give up, and I'm not going to give up. And he said that at an OA meeting at a convention, and I'm hoping to go to the August convention coming up. So I'm I'm not a quitter. And yes, thank you, Carrie. Thank you so much. I believe we got the question, and we'll give Kim an opportunity to respond. I actually I want to ask. Are you talking about giving your business number out, like you're trying to solicit business, or you're just giving out your phone number that happens no, to be on the business card? No, it's just my cell phone, but she took it that way. And okay. as that way, you know, I got real upset, and I started just chewing her out, you know? Okay. So so first of all, I, I, I want to stress that um, that abstinence is about being done. I just want to lovingly say to you, Perry, almost every time you share, you talk about the fact that you're abstinent today, but you weren't yesterday. So when you say you're not going to quit, my suggestion is quit. Give up. Give up the food. Give up getting your own way. Give up your way of thinking. Give up your old way of prejudices. Because otherwise, you're always going to be in the food. That's the reality. And that you need to seek out people that have the solution because you don't have it yet. So in general, giving out your phone number because you're trying to support someone else, what you're supporting is you're just the fact that you're in disease. 
So my suggestion to you is to get numbers, instead of giving out your numbers, get numbers who are people who are recovered, get numbers of people that will tell you the truth, that won't say it's okay that you picked up yesterday and today is a new day. People who will tell you the truth that abstinence is not a diet plan that you go on and off. Abstinence is that something that you, that you need to put all those foods down if you want to recover. So I do suggest you quit because we, that's the problem. If we think that we can do this on our own, if we think we can power up, then we don't understand what powerless means. You know, I'm just going to end with this, Leia, because what she's saying reminds me of something. It's, it's, it's spiritual principle. What we join with gets stronger, which is why I'm saying when you are in the beginning, if you are joining with people who will buy your bullshit, if you're joining with meetings that only talk about disease, that disease is going to get stronger. So if you are in the food, you need to join with people who are recovered. That's why I think there's electricity on this line. I hear people listening to this line like 24-7. Why? Because they're hearing a message of depth and weight. And how we can help is those of us who are recovered to go back in those rooms and share a message of depth and weight. And I'm just going to share how it's different for everybody. I have two friends that had the same problem. They both went to separate meetings in my area that were very disease-based. And they were having a lot of pushback from people because they didn't want to hear recovery. They wanted to hear that they could continue to eat. And they both did 10 steps on it. And each came to a different conclusion. The one person came to the conclusion that she could not be useful there, and she went to another meeting that was more receptive to her meeting, to, her, to the message of the, of the recovery. The other one decided that with all the bullshit, I'm sorry, all the BS that she spread in LA for decades, her amends was going to be to continue to go to that meeting and say the truth, regardless of what pushback she got. Because if, the, if she was getting pushback from 10 people and one person heard it, then it was worth it for her to get that pushback. So that, to me, is how we're going to grow. We're going to have to be willing to do that. But for those of you on the line, which is I'm going to say is probably 90% of you that are probably in the steps or not even abstinent, join, what you join with gets stronger. So watch who you're, speak, you're speaking to. If you're talking to people that are telling you it's okay to pick up, it's not a big deal. Just get back on track. Understand that that will bring you to destruction. And to seek out meetings, mentors, and recovered people that will be willing to tell you the truth and unite with people who are also maybe in the food or maybe in the steps that are just as focused on the solution as you are. I personally find my sponsees that, that um, find someone walking shoulder to shoulder with them in the steps seem to have the most success because they have a camaraderie with each other. When you're doing your fourth step, what was your fifth step like? So you're trying to create that fellowship you crave from the moment that you put the moment you're in the in the rooms to you know been having 30 years of abstinence it's create that fellowship around you that is focused on what is important to you because what we join with we get strong does get stronger and thank you and thank you Kim for your compelling presentation this morning thank you for your dedicated service to all of us Overeaters Anonymous. Share ID for this morning's presentation, 14,127. That's 14127. We're going to close from the last page of Chapter 11, A Vision for You. You'll find it on page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. 
God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.